Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning recognizing your greatness, your power, your majesty, that you are above all, Lord, in all and through all. And so we come before you, Lord, just remembering who you are and realizing that you are good and you desire to give good gifts to your children, Lord, that every good and perfect gift comes from above. And so this morning, Lord, we are grateful to worship you. We are grateful to come together as a body of Christ, Lord, to sing praises to your name and to study your word, to know you in a deeper way, Lord. So I pray now as we get into your word, Lord, that our hearts and our minds would be fixed on you, Lord. I pray that you would remove any distractions and that we would focus our hearts and minds on the things above and what you might want to say to us, Lord. We pray for the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, to minister the truths of your word to our hearts to transform us and make us more like you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Can you say hello to someone before you sit down? All right, everybody, come on in and have a seat. All right, well, good morning, everybody. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them out, please, and turn to the book of Luke, chapter 11. If you need a Bible, there are Bibles underneath some of the seats. If you um, don't find one there, then uh, raise your hand. We'll make sure you get a Bible this morning. But we are uh, in the book of Luke, chapter 11, and while you're turning there, um, have a few announcements just to let you know a few things going on in the church. So this Monday night, so tomorrow night at 7 o'clock here in the sanctuary is uh, women's ministry. And uh, they just started up last week with their new uh, semester. And so um, if you're a woman and would like to study the Bible with other women, then uh, come tomorrow night at 7 o'clock. Uh, also then Wednesday night, this Wednesday night, we are in the book of Galatians. We are in a section of the scriptures as we go through the Bible verse by verse, or we're going to be tackling these books really fast. And so uh, we started the book of Galatians last week, and we got to uh, through chapter 2 this week. We're planning on going through chapter 3 and 4. If you want to read ahead for that, that really is helpful. And I uh, encourage all of you to come out for that, the book of Galatians. And um, the last thing is the uh, third Thursday of every month, we have corporate prayer. That's going to be January 15th of this, uh, I'm sorry, February 15th of this month. And so um, invite you all to come out for corporate prayer. That is the engine of our church. So we need as much horsepower as we can get. So Thursday night, the third Thursday of every month. So with that, if you will uh, draw your attention to Luke chapter 11, we're going to be tackling the section of Scripture that goes from verses 1 through 13, and uh, we're going to have communion this morning as well. And so to start us off, I would like to um, just quote a Scripture from an English minister named Alan Redpath who said, 
No man or woman is greater than their prayer life. He also said that the poverty-stricken church today, in many things, she is poverty-stricken, yet she is most stricken in the place of prayer. And he said, failing here in the place of prayer, we fail everywhere. A lot of discussion about how best to do church, how to reach people, what's the best church format and technique. And as we look at all those things, we can't bypass the most important thing, and that is that a church is a place of prayer. Jesus himself said, my house shall be a a house of prayer. This is where it all starts. And the church is made up of individual believers in Christ. And so we have to ask ourselves, how is our prayer life? The disciples that did not go up on the Mount of Transfiguration that were left down the mountain when Jesus came back with Peter, James, and John, they came across an encounter of someone who was unable to be helped by the disciples. The man was unable to have a demon-possessed son relieved of that condition. And the disciples asked Jesus, well, why couldn't we do that? And he said, well, this kind only comes out through prayer and fasting. And I believe we live in such a time where there's this kind of spiritual darkness in our world. And it is imperative that the church is a church that can deal with this kind. And we do that, first of all, on our knees. We do that, first of all, by being a people of prayer. I'm also reminded, as we think about this subject of prayer this morning, of how Paul the Apostle told told us how we can actually deal with anxiety. It is interesting that we live in a day and age where anxiety is at an all-time high, at least recorded anxiety, and people that are on anxiety medications and people uh, using so many different ways to deal with anxiety. And and we're told in Philippians uh, 4.6 to be anxious for nothing, But instead, in all things, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, to make our requests known to God, and subsequently the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard our heart and our mind. So when we have scriptures like that, we have to ask ourselves, why is that in there? Is that just a noble thought and some sort of neat way to think, well, maybe there's, there's a, a thing that, that we can do, but in reality, do we think, well, it really doesn't work because I pray and I'm still anxious and I, I, I'm still struggling and dealing with and needing other things to help me with my anxiety. But there's nothing wrong with the scriptures in those statements. So we, we have to ask ourselves if, if the Bible says that we can do that when we're anxious, we can pray and pray with thanksgiving, then what is that where it actually is a, a thing, if you, if you want to just use a pragmatic term, it works in dealing with anxiety. Well, 
a big part of that scripture is that it says pray with thanksgiving. And what that means is, is basically when we're praying, then we're being relieved of that which is causing us anxiety because now it's in God's hand for his, him to deal with. So there's a relinquishing that needs to happen when we pray where we're surrendering the, the thing that we're anxious about to God. And that is where prayer then becomes actually practically very effective. In the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16, it says to pray without ceasing or stopping. So what does that mean? That we're to constantly be in prayer or be in a, a state of communication with God. In Ephesians 6, 18, where it talks about a spiritual warfare and being successful in dealing with the powers of darkness that rule the air. In Ephesians 6.18, it says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. So just with those few verses, we get some sort of idea that prayer is a very big deal. And there may be more to prayer than meets the eye. There may, may be more than just mentally thinking about things and telling God things. And we see that in our text this, this morning as Jesus talks about prayer and the significance of prayer. We're in a section of scripture, it sort of goes back to chapter 10 in verse 27, where Jesus, after getting to this point in the book of Luke and demonstrating to the disciples and then all those who would hear and would see and desire to understand, he'd be demonstrating what it, what it looks like, what it means to, to truly be a follower of God, to be a disciple of God. He, he, he would show them through his example. And, and then he gets to a place now where, we're, where we are in the scriptures where he, now he puts it on the disciples now to take ownership of their relationship with God. And he starts off by, in Luke chapter 10, verse 27, saying that we're to love the Lord God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and then we're to love our neighbor as ourself. And when he's saying that, the realization that one would have is that we can't do that on our own, but only through the power of God working through us that we would be able to do that. And then that goes into the story of Mary and Martha, where Jesus came into their house and Martha was serving and getting frustrated at Mary because Mary was sitting at Jesus's feet and she and Jesus said to Martha, Mary has chosen the better thing. What was he doing there? He was giving us an example of what it looks like to truly be a Christian in a fallen world, to live out our faith successfully in this world. And so that continues on in what we're looking at today as we learn the vital importance of praying and how key that is in our Christian life. And the thing about prayer, it's the undefeated Christian weapon. It's never been defeated. Prayer has never lost and never will lost. And, and God says this is something that 
you need to understand and actually work on and work on getting better at and make that an integral or vital part of your existence as a believer in Christ. So if you look at chapter 11, verse 1, we start off uh, just with this um, amazing desire that the disciples had just by watching Jesus. It says, now it came to pass as he was praying in a certain place that when he ceased or stopped, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John also taught his disciples. So going back to John the Baptist and as they were understanding his power and his effectiveness in his ministry, and then they're, they're seeing, so remember, they were seeing Jesus pray when they asked him this question. So they, this would be something that they'd often see Jesus doing. And at this particular time, as Jesus is encouraging them and explaining to them and teaching them what is behind the effectiveness of his life in this world, they, they see it. They see the reality of it. And we don't know what posture he was in necessarily. But what what we do know is that they're visually seeing Jesus pray meant for them that they wanted to know what that was all about more so than them asking Jesus, can you teach us how to do a Bible study? Can you teach us how to evangelize? Can you teach us how to expositionally work through the scriptures to give a perfect three-point sermon outline? They realize that all of the other things were born out of the one thing. And it was this prayer. This is where... The power was. This is where all that happened in Jesus' ministry, it came from. So this was like the the spring. This was like the the source. This is where where Jesus' ministry started, became effective, and they wanted to know about that. So the only thing that they ever asked Jesus to teach them to do. So we have to understand first and foremost that for a Christian, prayer is the priority. Prayer is what we need most of all to go on and be an effective Christian. To put put other things before that, then we'll simply end up losing steam and energy and focus and effectiveness It is prayer that is the foundation of that. As his disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, notice they didn't necessarily say, teach us how to pray. They just wanted him to teach us to pray, teach us to be a praying people. And 2,000 plus years later, I think we all feel a sense of 
inadequacy whenever we attempt to be good prayers. I don't know too many people that feel really good about their prayer life. I think most, most feel inadequate. Most feel like there's something lacking. Most feel like prayer is not the first thing that they necessarily go to or put all of their chips on the line in the area of prayer, but they use it as part of a system of other things that they use to deal with and cope with and and help in times of situation. But biblically, we see that prayer is the priority, and the disciples want to know what it's all about. Teach us to, to get away. Teach us to take time to stop. Teach us to, in the midst of battles and difficulties and and struggles, which the disciples were in and Jesus was in at this time, and it was even growing, it wasn't disappearing. So they're asking him, help us to do that prayer thing. Help us to understand and be people of prayer. And the disciples would need to know that later. And so, so Jesus then in acquiescing to their desire to want to be like Jesus in the area of prayer. The second thing he does is he gives them a pattern of prayer. Notice in verse 2. So he, he says to them, when you pray, say, and then he goes on and recites what is common to many people. It's the Lord's Prayer that we call it. It's not necessarily called that in the Bible, this, this really wouldn't be something Jesus would pray. It would be more the disciples' prayer because Jesus wouldn't pray for his sins to be forgiven. This is more Jesus giving them a structure or a format to help them. This is not necessarily something that you would just ritually, routinely repeat Although, it's not wrong to do that if you do it from the heart. And that's really the issue that is at hand when we talk about prayer. Acknowledging first and foremost that prayer is something that we do that is involved in a relationship. Notice what he says next. He gives them this sort of pattern that they can follow for prayer. And by the way, you may say, well, how do you know this is a pattern? How do you know this is not something we just recite all the time? Well, we don't find Paul ever praying like this. We don't find Jesus ever praying like this. We find all sorts of prayers as short as, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's a prayer. To longer prayers, shorter prayers. And and as we pointed out earlier, Paul says to pray without ceasing so you wouldn't just you can't stretch this out long enough to pray without ceasing so those are some ways we know it's a a pattern of prayer not a ritualistic formula that if you say this a a certain amount of times and you'll open up this certain magic box of everything that you desire it's it's a it's a summary of important things to think about when we're praying the first thing in prayer that he points out is acknowledging. So it's very important because of this. Prayer 
is relational. Prayer is from a relationship. And that's why a, a ritualistic prayer, reciting ritualistic words, is not really praying. Because if, if you're married, you wouldn't walk around with a cheat sheet in your back pocket, and every time you see your spouse, you just recite, Honey, I love you. How are you today? That's great, honey. Whatever you say, honey. And then put it back. You wouldn't just do that all the time. You would think somebody's crazy. But when you have a, a relationship with someone, it's important to relate to them. Wouldn't you say? It's important to talk with them, communicate with them. That's how we grow a relationship, isn't it? So another example, if you're married and you never talk to your spouse, how do you think that marriage is going to go? Well, if you don't know, it's not going to go well. It doesn't go well like that. Communication, we, every marriage manual will tell you communication's the key. And the point is, prayer is a relationship. And when we don't relate to God through interaction, prayer is how we interact with God, then we might be in a stale, mechanical, robotic relationship and not the relationship that God intends us to be in. It's very different. Someone who's not even saved and doesn't care much about God, they can go to church and just recite something because it's not personal. But the first thing about prayer is that it is personal, and because it's personal, it's relational. So that's why we're to pray without ceasing is because we're to be in constant communication with God, constant interaction with God. And because of that, and because we worship God in spirit and in truth, then we know that prayer is not just we go to some place in our closet and that's where we pray and then we get out and then we stop. Praying without ceasing means to be in constant interaction and communication with God. And to do that, we're not always able to have a certain posture or have a certain um, phrase or technique that we use, but instead to pray without ceasing is we're walking in fellowship with God, like in John 15, where it says, abide in me and I in you. And so praying could be sometimes when we could be even be talking to somebody at work or going through, a, we're about to get fired. So in our mind, we're praying. So you can pray in your mind, of course. You can interact with God like that, but you can also, and, and you should speak prayer. You should pray out loud too. So that's a, another way I, I believe that is important to pray is to pray out loud. So you can pray in your mind, but remember, you're just not thinking things. That's a mistake we can make. We think praying is just, I'm just thinking things. So you get, you're on the prayer text list and a text comes through and it's asking for prayer and you just think, think, think about the thing that's happening and you feel like you've prayed. But the question is, because prayer is relational, 
have you interacted with God? And so this is what Jesus is telling us is the important first step of prayer. As he says, our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. So he's acknowledging in prayer, what we do is we come to God, we're acknowledging the relationship. We're acknowledging in that relationship, every relationship will have some sort of role or some sort of definition, right? So you could have a friend's relationship and within friend's relationship, you can have different types of friend relationships. And of course, we mentioned before, marital relationship, you can have relationship with kids, you can have relationships with coworkers, and, and on and on and on. But, but so you're defining in your prayer, you're defining and acknowledging God in the prayer. And notice how you acknowledge him as father. Only a true believer in Jesus Christ can acknowledge him that way. Because only those who have been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ and have come into a new covenant relationship with him can truly say that he is their father. And so this is something that only true believers can do is to pray like this. And we're praying in a way where when you say father, it's a a very close, intimate relationship, but it's also structured in a certain way where there's one that is more powerful than the other, or one in that relationship where it says, hallowed be your name. What, what the prayer does is it would come into the relationship. We're acknowledging God's superiority, not only of us, not like he's our co-worker or our equal partner, but when we're coming in to prayer, and, and many of you, probably all of us in some way, we do that naturally. We, we already know that God is sovereign and in control. That's why we're coming to him. But is it, it is important to be cognizant of that when we come into prayer, that we're, we're coming in, we're, we're acknowledging that he is hollowed, which means that he, he is separate, he is sacred. We're, we're dealing with someone that is holy and very different than ourselves. He's not like us. He's not our buddy. He's not our little buddy. He's altogether different. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And we're coming into prayer, understanding that relationship, but also understanding that he is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, the creator of all that is seen. And we come in with that understanding that he allows us to come into his presence through the blood of Jesus Christ the privilege that we have to come and fellowship with him in that relationship. That is, you just start off in the prayer, and it's, it's, it's mind-blowing to see what Jesus is saying, that you have actually have the ability now to come to Jesus like this, or I'm sorry, to come to the Father like this, through Jesus. That you, you have the privilege and the opportunity. To recognize that when we go into prayer is huge. To recognize the relationship that he's our father. It's so personal, tender, loving, and caring. And yet he is hollowed. He is totally separate in a whole different categories. He's not the same as us. And yet he bids us to come to him 
and relate to him and communicate to him. So acknowledging, that's a big step. The second step is important too, and that's aligning. So if, if it makes sense when we're acknowledging who he is, then would it make sense that we would fall underneath his headship? The second step about aligning really is a huge next step because this unlocks the freedom of everything that follows in prayer because it takes away the power struggle that we often have when we come to God in prayer and we want one thing. We come to him and we're praying for something. And we're, we get in this power struggle where we, we think if, if I can just pray hard enough and persistently enough, determinedly enough, if I can just pray really hard, then I'll get my thing. But we have to first understand if we acknowledge God's superiority and his supremacy, we acknowledge that already then now it's our job through prayer to align ourselves with that, with his will, with his greatness, with, with his plan. So that's why he says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, acknowledging. And then align with him. So our prayer should be, Lord, your kingdom come. What does that mean? That means that we're praying that the place where God rules and reigns, and has control and governs, that that place would come. So one aspect of that is that that place would come in our own hearts, that God would have control and supremacy in our own heart, that we're actually asking for his will and his control. This is a sticking point for many of us because it's hard to let go of control. It's scary. It takes trust and faith. And so when we pray, we say, your kingdom come. I want your rule. I want your government. I want your things. That's what we're praying. And I, I desire that. And we really have to ask ourselves the question, do we really want God's kingdom in our life? Fully and completely. This is a huge step in our Christian walk relinquishing control to God, allowing and asking for his kingdom, his way, his rule, his reign to be in our hearts, which may be the hardest place for God to reign. And then there's another aspect of this is we're asking for his kingdom to come to earth. So that's where he says, your kingdom come, your will be done. So you might want to just highlight your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we're praying, God, let the things of heaven where you reign be the things of my heart and be the things around my actions and the things that I do. Let it be the kingdom of God. Let it be your will just like it is in heaven. Help me to stop fighting and stop wrestling and stop controlling and manipulating and justifying. Just, Lord, your will be done. That's it. 
do the thing in heaven. Do that in my heart. Bring heaven to my heart. Let me relinquish my fleshly things, my worldly things, even my preconceived ideas and my views of my future and all those things. Lord, forget all those things. Bring heaven to my heart. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What a prayer, huh? Now let me ask you, do you think God will answer that prayer? He will answer that prayer. That's the good news. He will answer that prayer because that's what God wants to do and that's what God is going to do. We're either going to get in the way of it and get run over by it or we're going to jump on the bus and say, Lord, your will be done. Let's go. Oh, I didn't know you were going that way. Okay, let's go that way. Wait a second. I didn't sign up for this. Well, God's will is still going that way. So do you want to get off or stay on? Stay on. Your will be done. We just keep saying that through our trials, in our prayers. Lord, your will be done. Bring your kingdom to my heart. Bring it to my situation. Your will be done here on earth like it is in heaven. This is how we pray. So we acknowledge now we're aligning. And then we ask. So yeah, there's a, a big part of prayer is asking. We call that petitioning God. But notice what the asking is for. Give us day by day our daily bread. So the asking is for physical needs. You think God's going to answer that prayer? He will. He'll answer that prayer. Lord, give me food to eat today so I don't starve. Now that prayer in our culture actually seems kind of ridiculous. How good is God if that prayer actually seems ridiculous? not ridiculous in most parts of the world. Maybe, I don't know about most, but a lot of parts of the world, that is a real prayer. I don't know if I'm going to eat today. And here's my baby screaming, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. I don't know if my baby is going to eat today. Food in and of itself shows how dependent we are on God. And so we should never get to the place where we forget if it weren't for God, we wouldn't eat. He is our provider. And this shows us how easily it is for us to take things for granted that we have. So we should be praying for our physical needs. Lord, today, just give me what I need to eat, Lord. Please, my daily bread. Notice this dependence in our asking. The dependence in our asking is day by day, we're going to be dependent on God when we ask. But then also in the asking is the asking for our spiritual needs. You see the priority here? You see how often when we go into prayer, it's just, Lord, don't make me go through this. Or, Lord, I want this. And if you don't give it to me, then prayer doesn't work. That's a lot of our attitude. And maybe we'll pray for a week or two. And it, it's kind of like when I was a, a little kid, we used to play ding-dong ditch in our neighborhood. So usually it was in the summer. We didn't have anything to do, and we'd get bored. And when it got night, we would go around our neighborhood. This is before they had ring cameras. So <laughs> I feel sorry for you if you're growing up now. But, you, yeah, you'd go, and you'd ring somebody's doorbell, and you'd run, and you'd hide, and you'd watch them. And they'd open the door and look around, and you'd snicker in the bushes. And 
It'd be great. But see, that's, sometimes that's how we pray. We ring the doorbell and we run. And we say, oh, nothing happened. No one came. And sometimes we just don't hang in there in prayer. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason that God doesn't automatically give us the thing we pray for. Because prayer is much more than just the delivery of the things that we desire. Prayer is about aligning ourselves according to God's will, as we saw in the beginning of the prayer. So a short-sighted view of prayer is simply, well, now I can pray for anything I want, ask in his name, and he'll give it. So I'll just start praying for everything, and, and then if it doesn't happen, then God, it doesn't work, so I'm going to do something else. And what we're doing when we do that is we're taking back control. It's a control issue. So the needs that we see in the asking, the Lord, just very minimal, very minimal, just take care of my daily provisions. But then there's a spiritual need. So these things are, are, are precedent. These, these things are important because we're seeing them in a different view than than we have. We're seeing them from an above-down view. We're seeing them from God's perspective. He's saying, look, this is what's important. It's, it's important that you pray like this, and it's important that spiritually, relationally, you're in good fellowship with God. Have you ever considered that being, as a Christian, the most important thing of your life? It's about being in fellowship with God, walking in fellowship with God, and to understand the Christian walk properly is to understand that our greatest problem is not being in fellowship with God. Our greatest success and joy is walking in fellowship with God. And so prayer is what helps align us and keep us in fellowship with God. And so we see in verse 4 how that happens. He says in this prayer that we had asked God to forgive us of our sins. Why is he saying that? If you're a true believer in Christ, do you need your sins forgiven again? Well, not positionally, right? Once you give your life to Jesus Christ, the blood of Jesus has washed all your sins away. But practically, practically, as we're in this world, in this flesh, we walk and we sin. And so it's important that we continue that relationship of fellowship, intimacy, and closeness. And the way we do that is to repent of our daily sins. Repent of our constant missteps and our constant desire to go after the things of the world. And when we do, then, then God says to restore the fellowship. So praying for forgiveness of sins by a believer is to restore fellowship. It's not for salvation. But do you see the emphasis in this prayer? It's all in relationship. This is the most important thing is, as believers is that we're in fellowship with God, that we're walking closely with him. So we ask for forgiveness of sins, and then as we do that, we forgive others of sins against us. So if we want to be right with God, we have to ask him to forgive us of our sins and we have to forgive others who have sinned against us. 
And then he says to lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So now think about praying that. Think about understanding the most important thing is my relationship and walk with God. And now my prayers look like that. My prayers start to take shape where, where Lord, you are in control. You are sovereign. You are so big and so mighty. You are the creator. I'm the creation. And so, Lord, I put myself underneath your headship. Lord, your will be done. You have your way. I'm your vessel. You're the potter. I'm the clay. Lord, have your way with me. Let me know what your way is. Help me be aware of it so I can walk in it. I surrender. I desire. What if you just did that? Your life would be so much different. My life would be so much different. We all struggle just with that. That's why Jesus is giving us that prayer. But as we do that, then we're, we're saying, Lord, forgive me of my sins. My relationship with you is so valuable, so important. That's where I receive all of my satisfaction, my comfort. You alone are everything to me, God. And everything that comes out of my life is from that relationship. So forgive me of my sins. Notice we're not just doing it in our mind. It, we're doing it from our heart. We pray from our heart. And then, Lord, help me to forgive those who have crossed me or sinned against me or hurt me. And then we're free now. Just that part, we're walking in the goodness of God and the fellowship that he has for us. And we say, Lord, as I'm walking, Lord, help me to keep walking with you. Help me in the areas of temptation. I see that temptation will draw me away from the most important thing in my life. Deliver me from the evil one. So that's it. That's, that's the model. That's the summary of prayer. But as he talks about this priority of prayer and then this pattern of prayer, he gives us this amazing promise to encourage us to prayer. And he does it in a parable. Notice in verse five. So he says to them, this is a parable. Uh, Which of you shall have a friend and go to him at midnight? Do you guys do that? Go to your friend's house at midnight? (laughs) So what if you did? And you go to his house and you knock. Hey, Friend, right there, you're probably not his friend anymore. (laughs) Hey, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. Give me bread. Now, a lot of you probably stay up to midnight. may not be a big deal. But in Jesus' time, there wasn't a lot to do after the sun went down as much as our people went to bed earlier, woke up earlier, generally speaking. And they lived in generally lived in houses that were one small room. And there would be a certain time where the whole family would come in that one small room. They would sleep on an elevated platform, everybody together in the family. And around them, not on the elevated platform, would be all their animals. And so at night, you can see that if one person woke up not only is the whole family waking up, all the animals are waking up. It's going to be a bad rest of the night. So now for sure, this guy is not a friend at this point. He's knocking for bread. 
And the guy's asleep in the house with his family in this elevated platform and all his chickens and goats and donkeys and whatever he has in there. And it says in verse 6, the explanation of the guy knocking is that a friend of mine has come to me on this journey and I don't have or I have nothing to set before him. I don't have any food. So the, the friend that's coming to the other friend is in a bad position because in those days, hospitality was so important. And so when someone would come by and it'd be hard to you know, communicate or text them like, hey, I'll be there at 12 or I'll be there at 1130, they would just show up when they showed up. And traveling was difficult, so it'd be hard to predict. And so the friend's friend shows up and it's the obligation of this friend to let him in and provide food for him, but he didn't have the food. This would be very bad in that culture. So out of desperation, he goes to his neighbor and says, hey, I need some food, just some bread. I don't have anything to set before them. And in verse 7, it says, he will answer from within the house and say, don't trouble me, don't bother me. The door is shut now, which means we're all in till the morning. And my children are with me in bed and I cannot rise and give to you. Basically, go, go away. And I say to you, though he will not rise and give him because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will rise and give him as many as he needs. So this parable is to say that in this example, that eventually there, the guy would get up because of the persistence of the guy coming to the door. But in reality, what this is saying is, with God, he is ready, willing, and able to come. That even, it's an argument from lesser to greater. That he, even this friend, friendship wasn't enough to get the guy out of bed but it was pestering him was enough to get him out of bed. The point of this uh, parable is that with God, he is anxious to hear and answer our prayer. It's not that we have to keep bothering him. It's not necessarily saying that. It's, it's an argument from even a human being who is bothered enough will answer. Well, even that low level of an answering is possible in the human realm, but God is even greater. He never sleeps and never slumbers. That every single prayer that we pray, he is anxious to answer. And he does answer. That's, that's what we're getting here is he promises to answer the prayer. And so this is another area where we can get messed up in our prayer life. We say, well, I've been praying and God hasn't answered. But he has. God always answers. That's the promise here. It's just his answer is yes, no, or wait. He always answers yes, no, or wait. And because in the first part of our prayer, we prayed, Lord, your will be done, then we are thankful for a no. Thank you for a no. Because remember the first part of the prayer? God is hallowed. He is separate. He is holy. He is better. 
He is good. He is right. His ways are perfect. So when he says no, it's actually a yes to something else. We should be thanking God for the no's. Because remember, as a Christian, we're signed up for God's will. So if no is God's will, it's an answer of prayer and praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that he's doing good and right by us. And he always will. And that's the point of this parable. It's to say, hey, look, God is answering your prayer. Maybe no, it may be yes, it may be wait. But he's answering, he hears, and he's going to answer according to the greatest and highest benefit for you, but most importantly, sovereignly for the plan of God, which is the most important. And then one more parable. And this speaks of now the power of prayer, what happens through this interaction that we have with God. So he says, so I say to you, Jesus is giving them another example. I say, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be open. So it's easy to read that and get frustrated with God. Because we're doing that and he's not doing what we think he should do. It goes right back to the first step. He is doing what is best and not acquiescing to what we want if it's wrong, hurtful, or harmful, or not the best. So... It's just kind of think about this just in a real practical way. It, it wouldn't make sense that you and I would ask, seek, and knock, and then everything we ask, seek, or knock, God says yes. How would that work, say, the Super Bowl? So you're ask, seeking, and knocking. 49ers, Lord, it's their time. I'm asking, I'm seeking, I'm knocking. And then somebody else is here, Lord, the chiefs, they've already won the last four. How about two more, Lord? I'm asking and seeking and knocking. So how does that work? So then you think, well, whoever's better in their walk with God, then they'll probably get their thing. And then you look at the NFL as a whole and you say, well, they're all not good with God generally. Just kidding. But see, it can't work like that. So that's where that first step is so important. So what, what, how, here's what happens. When we ask, seek, and knock, we receive, we find, and we have open. But what is all of those things that we receive, that we find, and that are open? And here's the key to the whole thing. When we pray and ask, seek, and knock, and God says, yes, no, or wait, what we're finding is that God is greater than us. We're finding a relationship that is much better than praying to receive things that we really don't know fully if we should receive them or not. We're finding if God says no, we're finding that he's greater. We're finding if he says yes, then all of God's promises are yes and amen, and thank God for that. We're saying if he says wait, 
I can wait because I'm having God's will right now, and that is better than not having God's will. Waiting in God's will is better than not waiting and not being in God's will. So we're being transformed. Do you see that? We're getting God's will and God's plan in the prayer. But bigger than that, we're getting the relationship with God in the right order and in the right plan. He is ruling and reigning in our life. We are submitting and obeying to his ruling and reigning. And through that, there is power of God, supernatural power of God working in our life. That's how it works. And so he finishes explaining that. In verse 11, he says, If a son asks for bread from a father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, so the point is, no, you wouldn't do that. So if, if you as human beings, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the what? You see that? The Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So that's the biggest reward through this whole process is that now we have the empowering of the Holy Spirit. That's the greatest gift that God can give us because the empowering of the Holy Spirit brings about everything that we really want. Those things that we pray that we think we want are not going to give us often what we think they will give us. But when we pray and allow God to bring about his will and we desire his will above all else, and when that happens, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit. And what does that mean? That inside we're having heaven inside of us, the fruit of the Spirit inside of us, the satisfaction of the living waters, and effectiveness in our Christian walk outwardly. That's everything. And so this is how prayer then is all put together in a way where its result has more to do with changing us than changing God. As Jim Elliott said, God gives his best to those who leave the choice with him. And through this prayer that we looked at, that's how we do that. And so as we come to God in prayer, we have a promise that he will answer and he'll answer according to good. It reminds me of what John Newton said about prayer. He said, when we pray, thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. So come to God with big prayers. Ask, seek, and knock, and let the Lord transform us through his prayers. We will never fail. We will never lose as a praying people like that. And so we are going to take communion this morning.
Let's go into prayer before we do that. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, for teaching us how to pray. Lord, as we think about the great saints of of old, as we think about the disciples, as we think about even the martyrs of the church and the amazing exploits that they had done, and we think about those in our day that are living in a way where it just seems like they're living in heaven while they're on earth. We know now why. We understand. It's prayer. It's the relationship that we have with you from heaven that is worked out in this world. And so, Lord, I pray for us as a church body that we would be a praying people, that we would be a people, Lord, who boast in you through our prayers, who surrender to you through our prayers, who enlist the forces of heaven to work in our life practically and in the smallest things and in the biggest things, Lord. Lord, let us be a house of prayer. Let us be a people of prayer and let our community be changed by prayer. Let our families be changed by prayer. Let us exemplify and model prayer to those around us, especially our family and our friends. Use us, Lord. We present ourselves to you now. Make us, make us a praying people, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's all stay seated. We have a, a few minutes left. The ushers are going to come around. They're going to pass around communion. And uh, as we take communion today, just remember what we are doing. As we take in the bread and take in the cup is we're remembering that the bread that represents the body of Christ that was given for us on the cross and the blood and, or the, the juice in the cup represents the blood of Christ, which was shed on the cross for our sins. What we're doing is we're saying we're remembering that and we have received that. We're taking it in as symbolic Reminder that we have received the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so take this time to pray, each of us. Let's take a few minutes. The ushers will be passing out the communion elements. Uh, Hang on to it and we'll take it all together. So just take this time to fellowship with the Lord. The elements are getting passed around. Such a great reminder as we think about the cross. As we think about why we do this, going back to the upper room and just before Jesus went to the cross. He told his disciples as he passed around the bread and the cup to do this in remembrance of him. 
He was foreshadowing what he was about to do on the cross. And it reminds us of the love of Christ for us. And I find that it's something that is often easily forgotten by us as Christians. As we go through difficulties and trials, we we forget the love of Christ. And at the cross, the issue was settled once and for all about his love for us. It was settled. The willingness of Christ to die for us, Jesus being fully in control of everything that was going on at the cross. And when it was time, he gave up his spirit. No one took it from him. He gave it up. Every detail of the cross speaks of a demonstration of love for us. And what that love means is it has implications for everything that we do in life. His actions towards us are those actions of love. His desire for us is to know His love, to experience His love. The Word tells us to pray that we'd actually be strengthened inside of us so that we can know more the fullness of God's love, our capacity to enjoy His love. He went to the cross for us to restore the relationship so that we can relate to Him, so we can enjoy Him. It's the way He created us in the image of Him, the image of God. He created us to know Him, to walk with Him, to enjoy Him. God is enjoyable. But boy, things sure got messed up, radically messed up. And God had to radically fix it. That's why the cross is so radical. It's just astounding to think that God would lower himself to that extent. To become one of us. To take on a human body and to be slaughtered on a cross in our place. But that is love. Every drop of blood, every feeling of pain, every drop of sweat, every lash of the whip, every bit of that was done for us to bring us back into a relationship with Him. And so as we hold these elements, let that be a reminder of how much God loves you. You may not think he does or feel he does or you may think that he's forgot about you or doesn't care about you but the cross tells us we're all wrong when we think about that when we think like that we're all wrong no doubt that's why Jesus said do this in remembrance of me you have to remember and continue to remember what I did for you that settles all the doubts answers all the questions when we look at the cross. And so today as we hold this bread, let us remind remind ourselves. This represents the 
practical love of God for you and for me. This represents what he is willing to do to restore the relationship with us. Let's partake of the bread together. And of course, the blood. This juice represents the blood of Jesus Christ. The sinless blood of Jesus Christ shed for us. Let's partake of the cup together. What love is this? Unbelievable. Let's all stand and we're going to worship the Lord before we leave. The prayer team will be up front if anybody would like prayer this morning about anything. Just as we sing this last song, just come on up and they'll be happy to pray with you guys. God bless you in Jesus' name.